0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip is my guest. i got to tell you, people, you know, we talked about it last week, about me getting engaged, and I'm a little stressing right now because tomorrow morning I'm going to New York to pick up the ring. Now, what stinks is it's pouring rain right now in South Jersey, and it's going to be pouring rain tomorrow, and I'm going to have to get up and I have to sneak out. And tell Joanne I'm, you know, I have something to do for my day job, and I have to sit there. And I'm going to drive up to Hamilton. I'm going to take the train into Manhattan, and then meet up with my brother in Midtown. And I have to do then get back here to New Jersey, and I have to get it all done by 4:30 when she gets home from work. And I wasn't sure how I was going to ask her, but I've come to the conclusion she wants to run around a bunch of errands tomorrow. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to get home, and I'm going to say, listen. We're going out to dinner here. I don't want to go across town. I'm going to tell her what my day entailed, and then I'm going to ask her to marry me. Nothing, nothing. I'm not a romantic guy. I think that's good. I'm going to say, you know what? This is what I did, and so will you marry me? So anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who has, I'm sure, taken a trip to New York many times. He's a fellow Jersey guy. He uh, has a triple box set coming out, which is uh, for pancreatic cancer, which is very close to my heart because... My brother Tom, his wife passed away six years ago of pancreatic cancer. And he's just a, a great musician. And my guest is Frankie Previtt. How you doing, Frank?
1: Good Steve. How are you, man? I'm doing Good well. and congratulations. Well, thanks. Uh, big, huge step.
0: Yeah, huge you step. know, it's funny and it, it's just so crazy. It's just it's you know, I usually look forward to going to New York City, but I'm stressing right now because it's, if it wasn't raining, and you know how it is, we're both from New Jersey, and I lived in L.A. for years. So, you know, you don't really see the rain. You don't really see the snow. And I know you lived in L.A. also. But in New Jersey, it's just like when it rains, and this year, it just hasn't stopped raining.
1: Well, the good news is that it's raining. It's not snowing. And so, you know, it could be even more you know, of a hassle to get around in the snow. So, you know, stick that umbrella up and uh, go do your thing. You're, you're an East Coast guy. You know what it's about. I
0: know. Twenty. Even though I was on the West Coast for 22 years, you don't lose the East Coast. There you go. So I got to ask you, you know, you, you've been a musician for a long time. When, what got you interested in music? When did you start performing? I believe your father was an opera singer. So I'm guessing you were around music. But what got you into it that you wanted to make it your career?
1: Well, you asked a, a really interesting question. What? When was the first time I performed? And so, at four years old, I remember hearing my dad, who was an opera singer, rehearsing for weeks to do this concert at the Paramount. Actually, the convention hall in Park. And uh, so he was doing a Caruso, one of Caruso's things, a Paiachi, and uh, I remember going to convention hall with my mom sitting on her lap. I'm four years old and my dad goes to hit the high note. I stood up in her lap and I belted the high note before he hit it (laughs) and the whole place cracked up. So there's my first gig.
0: So you got the gig and now you're around it or music. So when do you decide though, you know, as a kid and like, did you, when's the first time you picked up an instrument? Put it that way.
1: Well, you know, mostly my instrument was my voice my parents had me taking piano lessons when i was like 10 11 years old but really the thing that propelled me was my voice and um uh, you know i would sing out my father would have me singing in uh charities to raise money for cerebral palsy and you know singing these italian songs that you know uh also mio and uh, love is a many splendor thing and be My Love by Mario Lanza, songs that I had no idea what the hell I was even singing. And, you know, it, it kind of planted the seed, you know, hearing the audience respond back to me. When I was 13, I started a, an a cappella singing group Called Frankie Love in The Intruders, Ooh. which was a goof. Um, <laughs> and, but we used to open up for, like, you know, the Dupree's and, and you know, different bands around. And so that, you know, I started really playing out 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, 15 years old. I signed to London Records. Um, and they they uh, named us Poker Chip and the Five Studs. I'm not sure if I was poker or if I was Chip. You know and that, you that a stud? Really, <laughs> nothing ever happened to that band. But, you know, I, I started singing when I was very young, and by the time I was a senior in high school, my parents had all of these uh, colleges coming by showing me videos of their college, and I would be like drifting out the window, and one of these guys, my parents left the room, and he goes, you know what, I noticed that you haven't watched the video once. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I just said to him, I want to be a singer. And my parents walked back in the room, and he goes, Now's a good time for you to tell them that. And uh, so I told them, they said, listen, you go to school, and you can be anything you want once you graduate. So on my graduation day from college, I split. I didn't go to graduation. I was up in Boston in a rock and roll band. So, and here I am talking to you.
0: Now, was that band Bull Angus or what band was that?
1: No, it was a it was a cover band. And uh, that band, you know, after about a month or two with that band, I realized that, you know, this band wasn't really destined to go where I wanted to go. I wanted to write songs. So I signed... Um, I found this band that was playing at a club called The Cheetah in New York, and they had put an ad in The Aquarian, which is a local newspaper, music newspaper, and they were looking for a lead singer. They were signed to Capitol Records, and I went in, and they were like this really outside of the realm of who I was as a singer, because I was listening to sam and dave and otis redding and the rascals and all, all this other type of music and they were doing uh, Moby grape and buffalo springfield they even did also sprock zero fuster which is from the movie 2001 space odyssey and so i would watch these guys and i go holy hell how am i gonna even fit in this group and so i went The next day to audition and they didn't know one song i knew or they and i didn't know what song they did but we had one song that we both knew which was try a little tenderness by otis redding i sang that song and i got the gig and from that band i toured and wrote songs and recorded in in long island in hempstead long island at Ultrasonic Studios with Shadow Morton, John Lindy, and Vinnie Testa, which was community productions. And they produced bands like the Vanilla Fudge, if you ever remember them. Yeah. And uh, so that was my start of writing original music, being in an original band. And that drummer, Gino Charles, and I started a band called Bull Angus, and we signed to Mercury Records, One of the producers from Community Productions, Vinny Testa, came on board, signed us to ATI, and Jeff Franklin had us touring with Rod Stewart, playing every Madison Square Garden uh, in America, and then out with Deep Purple, then out with Fleetwood Mac, then we uh, did the Pocono Mountain Festival, 300,000 people. So doing those kind of gigs, writing your own material, it really plants the seed deeply inside of you of who you want to be and what you want to do.
0: Well, what is it like? I mean, you're a younger guy and you're touring with legends. I mean, you know, one, that the the crowd is there to listen to music, but you also know sometimes that the crowd is there to listen to the closing band. How did you sell yourself to those crowds to make them like you? Because it's not like you guys were a real well-known band and you're playing in... Venues like Madison Square Garden, which must be intimidating as all hell, and in front of 300,000 people, which must be intimidating as all hell. How do you take that on as a singer?
1: You know, really, um, after the music starts and you're into that first song, everything is like, becomes second nature to you. You're there doing it. And we were a high energy band, and we, we created this high energy, which created the performance that we we did. And even Rod Stewart, after we left the tour, had another band that came on that opened for him. <clears throat> and he got back word to us that the tour wasn't the same when we left because the energy that we created for him with the crowd before he went on wasn't the same. So it was about the you know, the camaraderie of that band and the energy that we had together. And we, we were performing for the audience, but we were also getting off on each other. And yeah. I think that, you know, allowing people to in your living room to, to come in and, and experience that with you, um, it, it kind of ingratiates them to what you're doing.
0: Well, you said, you know, you guys had a great energy. And I think when you're playing these concerts, you probably got very tight as a band just in your stage performance. What happened Absolutely. What happened with the band? though? I mean, because it seems like, you know, as I said, you were touring with great people. You must have been tight. You must have been a tight machine after these concert tours. What happened? Did you get disinterested in that band, or what happened to Bull Angus?
1: Bull Angus was, um, we were getting ready to do our third record and had a bunch of demos that we had, were doing. Which happened if one of them happens to be on this new collection that I'm putting out um, called Sweet Marmalade. We're doing all these demos at, at Ultrasonic, and uh, you know the guy that was managing us had an argument with ATI, our booking agent, and the booking agent was really crucial to us doing these great gigs because we we were not a band that was putting out you know pop singles. We were a harder, harder edge rock and roll band. And so we needed that live venue to, to kind of get our underground following. And so when they had a, uh, a falling out, the uh, the band kind of was no longer had a booking agent. And uh, we, we kind of fell apart and we, we tried to reform. So a bunch of us got together and we moved out to uh, closer to where the label was, out to you know the Chicago area. We moved to actually, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we played out there for about another year and and tried to, you know, write new songs and get another deal, but it it just wasn't happening for us. And so I moved back home to uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I started uh, selling cars out of my driveway to make enough money to take my voice lessons and pay my bills. And uh, there was a young girl that i had dated in in high school and uh, when i got back many years later for after polengas i ran into her and she said oh guess what i married art cast and i said who's our cast well he owns Buddha records and he should hear you sing so our cast turned me on to a guy named tony camillo who uh was, is a producer was a producer and and um he produced midnight train to georgia in his basement in Bell New Jersey. So I went to see Tony in his basement in Bell and he heard me sing and he told our cast, you know what, this kid's pretty good, give him a deal. So then again, I started doing demos and writing songs. And if I write a rock and roll song, it would end up in Tony's draw. If I wrote an R and B song, we'd end up recording it. So I have a bunch of those demos that never got released that's on this new box set as well. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of making a collection of my musical journey, and that's part of, you know, putting these Frank and a Knockout three albums together, and the bonus tracks are are kind of my my journey to and from the Academy Awards.
0: Now, now, you know, you said you're doing R&B and rock and roll, how, do you, how would you balance writing both of them? Because they're two different kinds of songs. And was there one that you preferred more than the other at that time in your life?
1: I preferred the energy of the rock and roll, but I enjoyed how, who I was as a singer, as an R&B singer. And so I took those two sounds and I, I kind of meshed them together and formed a blue-eyed soul rock and roll band called Frankie and the Knockouts.
0: So, it's in New Jersey. Now, what was your target market with Frankie and Knockouts? Who did you want to play for? What kind of crowds were you looking to connect with?
1: You know, most of the songs that that we wrote, we were trying to go after that uh, foreigner market. Um, Even a mix between foreigner and hole and oats. And and have that kind of uh, following and and, uh, appeal to those uh, type crowds. So uh, what had happened was the very last song that I wrote for the first record was a song called Sweetheart. And I brought it into the label and I talked to Jimmy Einer and he was like, good song, could be a hit record, but you're going to get pegged as a pop band if you put that out. He said, you want to put that bullet in the gun? And I said, why not? Why don't we put it in the gun? And we did and he did, and radio and, and uh, kind of saw us, the softer side of Frankie in the knockouts. The thing that I uh, realized was that when we played the songs out, even Sweetheart, there was a rockier, harder edge after we had learned the song. When you first write a song and you're first giving it to the band, it, it has a certain vibe to it. And then you record it, then you go play it out. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, shoot, man, this song can rock out if we do this to it. And we open it up here and we do some kicks over there and we put a harder edge to it. And so we did that. And so on this box set, again, there are six live tracks of Frankie and the Knockouts to kind of show that we were a rock and roll band and and that that's, the audience we were appealing to.
0: Well, it's weird, you know, you said when you're live, it gets more, you know, once you put, start playing it more, it develops more. Did you ever get a, an adverse reaction from people who wanted to hear the Sweetheart they knew, and then it was would say, wait, when it was more hard-rocking live?
1: No, I, I think that um, because our harder songs were still melodic, they, they weren't, you know, songs that were out of being popular-sounding songs, um, that we were accepted. But I think most people, until we played Sweetheart, didn't realize who we were. You know, we, we'd play like four or five songs, and they were into it, and yeah, oh, and then all of a sudden we'd play Sweetheart, and the place would go crazy.
0: Now, now who was your original drummer for uh, Franken the Knockouts?
1: It was Claude Lehanoff
0: Okay, now, now I heard Tico Torres played for you guys, too?
1: Yeah, Tico came in after the second record... And, um, you know, did a, did a record with us and did a couple of tours with us. And after we finished our third record, uh, Tico uh, went back home and I was doing the vocals and he called me and he said, you know, there's this kid, Bon Jovi, was asking me to do some demos. And I was wondering if you would mind if i go make some bucks and go play, you know, did some demos. And I said, go make some money, man. Go, go do his demos. And so... You know, Tico did well and still is in Bon Jovi and still, you
0: know, making money. What is it like when you lose a drummer? Because the drummer so many times is the backbone of your band. You know, people don't give drummers and bassists enough credit, but they're like base, I'm a baseball fan. They're like the second baseman and the shortstop. They, you know, they, they, they have a big thing. What is it like when you leave, when you lose a drummer that you've known for a while and you have to get a new person to drum with you? How long does it take to gain that trust in that new drummer?
1: Sometimes it takes a while, and then in this case with Tico, I knew in the first five minutes he was our heartbeat. You know, he just he just had a way of the band had a certain swing, a certain like uh, you know he he was driving the bus, and so you know I, I knew instantaneously. But I had jammed with Tico before, so I knew he was a good drummer. But you know you never know until somebody comes in and they start putting you know, their, their personality into your music, whether it's going to fit or not. And he, he just locked, you
0: know? Now, now you recorded three albums with Frankie and the Knockouts, right? Correct. And then did the label sold, is that what happened? What happened with Frankie and the Knockouts?
1: What happened was Jimmy Einer, who was the president of Millennium Records and, Jimmy had a, a, a very decorative history of who he was as a producer of the Raspberries and Three Dog Night and John Lennon and a, just a bunch of people. And uh, so he had his own label distributed by RCA, and, and he was really a guy that, you know, if he, he believed in you, he, he put his money where his mouth was. So he went back to RCA when it was time to re-up, and he said, I need this much to promote my bands and they were well we're only going to give you this much and he goes well I'll shut my label before I'll do that and so they said well we're only going to give you this much so Jimmy said adios and he sold us to MCA and so MCA when when we went there um, I, I don't know what was going on at MCA but they they wanted us for some odd reason to sound like Night Ranger and I said well, why would you do that? You have Night Ranger on your right. label, and and I'm um, kind of taken back. Why? Well, we're going to have Night Ranger's producer come in and and mix one of your tracks, and we're going to send it out to radio and see and see if we can have you have you become you know this other band. And so they did that. and The song was outrageous. It's on the third record, and radio just didn't embrace the song, and MCA dropped us. So. Again, on this box set, the the Making the Point record, here's a chance for those songs, and I call my songs like my kids. Here's a chance for my kids to get out there and into the light of day. And there's songs like uh, One Good Reason, Blame It on My Heart, uh, a song called Come Rain or Shine that Jeff uh, Piccaro from Toto played drums on uh, when we, we recorded in L.A., and so that that album has a sounds really good. There's some really good songs, but it, it never really got its due. So here's a chance for Frank and the Knockout fans to, you know, embrace that third record.
0: Now, how does that make you feel when you know something's really good, and you know you sound like you're very much passionate about this third album, and it doesn't get the chance? it must sometimes sort of drive you crazy a little inside because you know it's good. And it's not being arrogant, like, oh, it's so good. You know it's good. People liked it and people who heard it liked it. But what's that like for an artist to sit there and be like, God damn it, man, if people just listened to this, it would be huge. What goes for your mind?
1: Well, it's debilitating, number one, because you, you spent a year of your life writing, arranging, recording, rehearsing these songs and, and then all of a sudden, you, you're switching labels to a label that really doesn't get you. And so there's, there's a bit of, you know, I don't want to say depression, but, you, you know, you're downhearted. And, you know, you realize, here I am. i got to start all over again and, and try to find another record deal and write new songs. And so as I started to write these new songs... I wrote a song that I thought was going to be a really, really great song for the next record and and a few others. And so I'd send those songs out and I would get, not, you got nothing, kid. And one of those songs was called Hungry Eyes. And so, you know, that ended up finding its home in, in Dirty Dancing with Eric Carmen. But it just shows and proves to you that sometimes... It's about the timing of things. When when Jimmy Einer recalled me two years later after he closed his label and said to me, uh, hey, Frankie, I want you to write a song for this movie. I said, Jimmy, I don't really have time, man. I'm trying to get a deal. I'm writing songs. He goes, make time. This is going to change your life. I'm like, yeah, right. You're going to change my life. And, and he goes, no, I got a good feeling about this movie. And I go, all right, what's, what's the name of the movie? And he goes, Dirty Dancing. And so I put my hand on my phone, and I'm going, oh, my God, Jimmy's doing porn. You know, and I'm like, Jesus. And he goes, no, no, I I got a good feeling about this movie. I think it's going to be really good. So he gives me this five-minute description of Johnny meets Baby, and the father doesn't like the kid. They're up in the Catskills. And he goes, the good news is you're going to try to write a song. He goes, the bad news is it has to be seven minutes long, because that's how long the scene is. So I called up John Di Nicola, who I was writing with at the time, and he and I wrote Hungry Eyes together and a lot of other songs. And I said, John, I said, listen, let's start the song halftime with the chorus up front, and then we hit the downbeat of the verse, we'll double time it. And, uh, you know, and, and it has to be seven minutes long. So he sent me a track, and I played it to Jimmy over the phone. He goes, you know what? Make a song out of it. I like it. So on the Garden State Parkway exit 140, I put the cassette in my car on the way to the studio, and I jam. And I have a little recorder on and I'm jamming to the, you know, trying to find a melody going, and I'm of my life, and I'm of my life. What the hell am I saying? And I'm scribbling time of my life on an envelope, and the seed of that song was created on the Garden State Parkway.
0: Now, the seed is created. How do you build it from there?
1: Um, basically, you know, what I once you find, once I find the title, the song that I'm trying to, um, you know, the subject matter that I'm trying to write about, then, then the hard part comes for me because the easy <laughs> part for me is the melody. And then I just started to write. When I met Patrick Swayze at the Academy Awards, he said, he said, dude, it was like you were here watching us film because the lyrics fit this movie. It's unbelievable. He goes, there, there was 149 songs we turned down. And, and we filmed out a sequence. Your song came in. It was the 150th song on the day, the first day of filming, we filmed the last scene. And he goes, we didn't even like this movie because we didn't have the, the song. And he goes, when the cassette came in with you singing with that girl, and I said, yeah, Rochelle Capelli, he goes, we filmed to you. And when I'm lip syncing, I'm lip syncing to you. And he goes, at the end of the day, we all just looked at each other and went, holy shit, what just happened? You know, what an, what a great ending. Let's go make a movie. So, you know, it's just, it's the power of music that when... It connects and, you know, if it wasn't for Patrick and Jennifer and Eleanor Bergstein's little script and the song, the, that perfect storm wouldn't have happened and you wouldn't have had Dirty Dancing.
0: Now, now, do you ever sit there and think, okay, now I'm, I'm 55 and, you know, we all love Dirty Dancing, my generation, and now with cable, everyone watches it and it's one of those movies that lives on forever and it will. And that song you wrote, do you ever think that you have brought so much joy into people because it adds to the movie. I mean, did you ever think that you would touch so many people when you're driving down the parkway, scribbling on an on a, uh, envelope, you know, just a few lyrics? Did you ever think that it would, would turn into that?
1: Not in a million years. You know, my dream as a kid when I was <laughs> telling you know, these guys from college is I want to be a singer. It would be maybe one day hear myself sing on the radio and then to live beyond that dream of an Academy award, a golden globe, a Grammy nomination, ASCAP song of the year, most played song in the world. It's like, what just happened to me? You know, my, I, I was floating, you know, that year was, was just beyond anything I could have imagined for myself. And to see that 31 years later, when we think about Dirty Dancing, 1987, 31 years later, that the power of that song and that movie still has into people's hearts, you know, the record sold an unbelievable amount of records, like 55 million records. So talk about, did I have a clue? Nah, not even a a sniff of a clue.
0: Now, you wrote that. Now, was Hungry Eyes included before you wrote that, or did it become get included after because they liked that work that you did with the, that song?
1: After. And you know, they came to me and said, you know, we're going to use Time of My Life and uh, you got anything else, you know? And so I sent them Hungry Eyes and they, in fact, they even said to me, would you like to sing Hungry Eyes? I said, sure. And I went and got everything. And then one day, right before I was getting ready to record it, there amiel Ardolino called me and who's the director and said i'd like you to write for another scene and by the way what are the bpms for hungry eyes because they're having a hard time linking up the, you know the demo to your i go what are you talking about i'm recording it monday he goes oh man you didn't hear eric carmen is going to sing it i go really I go, well that's great he's a great singer but jesus well, i wish somebody would have told me you know so i had to you know swallow that pill But, you know, at the end of the day, the song came out great. And, you know, it's time of my life's little brother.
0: Now, what was it like going to the Oscars? And then what was it like winning an Oscar? I mean, you won an Oscar. You know, that's a thing where people dream of that and you have an Oscar. But what was that like when you went to the awards? Was it as what you would thought it would be if you watched it on TV?
1: Um, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I just sat there, and I, I brought my parents, my my mother and father. <clears> sat <throat> left and right, and um, I, I told the guys, you know, if if we win by some chance, you're sitting at the end of the row. Wait for me to come out because it's going to. I'm in the middle of the row. Don't go up there because they're going to start the clock, and then we won't have enough time to thank. You know, everybody. So, of course, uh, my, I'm sitting there. They're playing all the songs. My father looks at me and he goes, I just heard all the songs. You're going to win. And I looked at him and I went, do not put the maliki on me, man. Don't do that. <laughs> and, and he goes, no, I got a feeling. I said, please, please, just let's, let's, let's stay focused. I don't remember leaving the row. I don't remember walking up on that stage. But... You know, I I have, you know, YouTube videos of it with me and my my funky mustache back in 87 and, you know, still thinking I was going to be Frankie in the knockouts, you know, next record and everything. But it it was, I don't know, it was surreal. It was surreal.
0: So what was your relationship with Patrick? I'm sure you're because you're involved with pancreatic cancer that helped, you, you know, because of him. But what was your relationship with Patrick?
1: You know, it was a a, a kinship because of the connection we had with the movie and the song, but he had also reached out to me. Um, He was doing some charities, and uh, I attended some of the, you know, events that he was in, and we were able to hang back, you know, stage and just sit for hours and just kind of talk and, and become, you know, friends in a very short time. Uh, we connected very quickly. And, and I realized that the character he played in Dirty Dancing, that uh, tough guy with a big heart, that was really Patrick. He was just a, a really cool guy.
0: Now, what made you decide to come out with a box set?
1: You know, I was um, had these three albums, the Frankie and the Knockout Records. Uh, Friday Music, Joe Ragozo called me said you know what we we have a lot of fans i i put out a lot of music he must have like a thousand artists on his label i mean like really really impressive you know a uh, catalog of artists like david bowie and, and just really really good catalogs of songs and he puts them out on cds and he streams them and he does vinyl which is really cool and he goes you you've never done all three records as a box set and I said, no. And he goes, let's do that. And we can get that third record heard that you always talk about. And we can put some, you know, unreleased demos. So there are 11 unreleased songs from Bolangas from R&B Land, uh, Buddha Records, from songs that didn't make the Knockout Records, to songs that I wrote with Chasm Sultan from Todd Rudgren and Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's band. And then songs after I won the Academy Award, and so it's kind of like a, a little bit of a walk down memory lane for me musically, and it's a journey, that my musical journey, and then these six live tracks are, are not the greatest recordings, but they are bootleg kind of live tracks that, you know, off the board kind of stuff that kind of reminds me of how good the Knockouts were live.
0: Now, I was at a party the other night and I was talking to my girlfriend's niece and then an older guy like me and we were talking about music and how, you know, kids now don't get the, um, the experience of, you know, buying a record and holding it and looking at it and checking out the liner notes and the lyrics and seeing the songs go in order. When you put your albums together with Frankie and the Knockouts, did you know what orders your songs would go in once you had them all recorded how did, you, how did you simulate that? Formulate that, I mean. Um,
1: you know, it's a process, you know, and, and uh, <coughs> I would have all the recordings and I would have them, you know, I would play one, I would play the end of one, I would start the other one. You know, I, I would, you know, kind of get the feeling of, it's almost like putting a set together when you go out and play live you know, and and have a build to your set. So you start a certain way and you get mellow and then you bring it back and then you get mellow again and then you you kick it on the end. So it's, you know, a a similar thing. Um, But now you have songs that are fading as opposed to songs that are ending. So it it takes a minute, but, you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into that.
0: Now, a dollar, I believe, of each of this album goes to Pancreatic Cancer? A
1: dollar and also... The, the de- demos that I told you that they filmed the movie to the uh, title of My Life, Hungry Eyes, are on a website called uh, fe- uh, not a website. It's a Facebook page called Dirty Dancing Demos, and I sell those original demos, and uh, and I donate all that money to pancreatic cancer.
0: And you
1: raised so look- a decent amount of money for that uh, for that charity, and Pamela Costa. Uh, is a good friend and she's the one who started the charity and that's where Lisa Swayze donates her time and energy and uh, you know it's just something that's near and dear to to my heart because Patrick was near and dear to my heart.
0: And is that why you got involved in it and how did you actually get on board to help people because it is one of these diseases that it moves very quick pancreatic cancer it's not like you know colon cancer is long yes
1: yeah, it's, it's a silent killer you know it's the, it's um, what pamela told me was the least um, donated charity by our government uh, from any of the cancers and she goes so it's really going to take um the people to to really help um cure help cure this disease or or find the early detection and that's the key to this disease because it's the silent killer you you don't know you have it until it's too late and so if there's an early detection of it a a way to detect it earlier on there could be possibly a cure or you you could you know survive this so I, I tried to find out where Lisa Swayze was donating her time and then I found out it was the pancreatic cancer action Network and so when I called there, for some odd reason, Pamela Acosta answered the phone and she and I started to have a dialogue and became friends. And I found out later it's the largest pancreatic cancer charity bigger than Love Garden in the world. And so, you know, I have this theory that if we all in the world gave a dollar, we could probably beat this thing. So I'm just trying to do my my part.
0: Now With the box set, you know, would there ever, would you ever consider getting the, as they say, we're getting the band back together and and doing a a pancreatic benefit? I mean, we live in New Jersey, you know, there's different, you know, Light of Day is the band that goes overseas and they, you know, by Vinnie Lopez, they start up, you know, Eric Brazilian's played in them. My friend Jeffrey Gaines has played in them. There's people out there who will do stuff like that. Have you ever sat there and thought about getting a show together?
1: It's interesting that uh, uh, Tony Pellegrosi, who's a good friend, um, is, is the guy who organized and helps organize that every year, along with uh, the publicist, Randy Alexander. And so I kind of know the inside of what's going on with Light of Day. It's a really great charity as well. Um, and Bobby Massano called me two days ago and said, dude, I heard there's, there's a record out. Want to put the band back? And so I I, I laughed. And then I heard from Tico. You ever need me, man? Just let me know. So, listen. If there was enough uh, people that wanted to hear Frankie and the Knockouts, I'm sure we could do something.
0: Now, you're also working on a musical.
1: I am. I am. It's called uh, Calling All Divas, and it's uh, you know a little outside of my box. You know, to write a play that turns into a concert, and um, I actually perform at the very end of of the uh, show uh, what happens is uh, in the first act there are uh, there's a young songwriter who's looking for a voice for his next hit record and um, he's going to break that girl through this nightclub friend of his who owns this like uh, club where everybody who was anybody came out of and um, so he he goes out to find the next voice and in doing so he he finds himself in a recording studio, and and this girl who has been singing forever, she was a rock head, she was also a Broadway star, and she had her own TV show, but she's very content in in her later years, in her 50s, to just, you know, do session work, and so he sounds her, and he sounds this other girl in, in a blues nightclub in Harlem. And um, he finds another girl in this, like, funky country bar. And then on his way back to the club in the subway, he finds this 19-year-old subway singer, and he brings all four of them in to sing for his his boss. And when the boss hears all four of them sing, he can't pick one. He's like, I I don't know which one, you know, is better. He goes, they're all great. And so the second act, he he announces who the winner is. And he says, there's only going to be one winner. I told you that. And tonight we're going to show you who that winner is. And he makes them a group called the unforgettables. And the whole second act is a concert of the unforgettables. And that's the show calling old divas.
0: Now, now, where are you at with that? Are you, are you pitching it or what's going on with it?
1: Yeah, we played um, a few theaters in Manhattan did very well, and uh, on March 2nd, we're at the Keswick Theater, uh, right outside of Philly, and then we'll come back and start to do, you know, um, Count Basie-type gigs, um, Mayo Theater in in, uh, Morristown, and we have a booking agent now, so we're going to try to, you know, the the good thing about the show is that there's there's this kind of play that turns into a concert, but then if there's a place like uh, a casino that says, well, we love the act, but we only have 75 minutes, so we send the Unforgettables. and we just do the concert.
0: Okay. That's brilliant. It's a great idea. Yeah, yeah thanks. Now, now, are you, besides the musical, are you writing your own music these days? Stuff for you?
1: Um, you know, I'm writing stuff for the show. There's some original songs in this show. Um, I sing Time of My Life at the very end. They, you know The girls, after they finish, they say, and guess what, there really is a Frankie, and he really did write a great song, and he's here tonight to sing it for you. So I come out, and all, all the girls and I sing I've Had the Time of My Life. But there'll be other songs that I'm writing for the show that'll be sung in the show. Um, I, I'm not writing for me as an artist, per se, um, but I, I try to write for projects that... You know what? Having been, you know, been blessed with this thing that happened to me, this dirty dancing, this time of my life thing that happened to me, uh, I'm able to do and write music that I love and want to do, not that I have to do. So, you know, it gives me a chance to just do projects that, that I, you know, have a passion for.
0: Now, do you ever, and this sounds like a weird question, but let's say you're at a supermarket or you're in an elevator, because that song plays everywhere. Do you ever sit there and go, oh man, i got to hear it again? Does that ever go through your mind?
1: No, but it's its kind of neat being in an, an elevator or in a, in a grocery store and it's really crowded and it comes on. And I'm walking next to all these people just thinking, hearing them sing the lyrics to my song. And and it's just, I can't tell you what a great feeling it
0: is. It must be a great feeling. I think the only bad feeling would be is if you went to a karaoke night and someone butchered it. That would, for me, would would drive (laughs) me up the wall. That's
1: okay, too, you know, because, (laughs) hey, without... You know, it becoming a karaoke song, that means it didn't really have enough juice to become a karaoke song. Exactly.
0: Well, we got to wrap up, soon, But I want to ask you, if you can break it down, you've had such a great career, what would you say the three highlights of your musical career have been? The three top highlights to you personally. It doesn't have to be accolades. It's to you personally.
1: Things that I remember the most... Are you know singing as a a young singer uh, for charity with my dad teaching me these these songs uh, the uh, O Sole Mio in Italian then uh, me in front of 300,000 people seeing my parents in the front row and and watching these um, people pass the wine bottle with acid in it getting closer and closer to my parents and me screaming out don't drink the wine <laughs> so that that was a, a good memory and then um you know obviously doing not performing for about 3 years trying to get this record deal my my first gig was live on Fridays uh, which was a live television show that was like kind of like Saturday night live so yeah. that there's three but
0: Winning the Academy Award, I, I think, was was the cherry. Well, you also played on America Bandstand, didn't you?
1: Twice, yeah. Twice, what? and then solid gold twice, yeah.
0: What was what was like being like on those shows?
1: Um, it was interesting. You know, Dick Clark was a very, very cool guy. I had a chance to uh, be on the plane with him, sit next to him, flying back from uh, Jersey to L.A., um, Just, uh, you know, part of history, I I remember when they were in Philadelphia, an American band stand out of Philadelphia, and my sister, and I was just this little kid, and my sister used to be dancing in her, you know, bobby socks or whatever, so to be able to be on that show was like, holy cow, you know, a little Frankie Prepper from New Brunswick. Holy
0: cow. What made you stay in New Jersey all these years? I came back because I love New Jersey, but what made you stay in New Jersey? I know you said you were in, in, up near Chicago and in Indiana, and I know you lived in L.A. for a while. What, what has made you keep your roots in New Jersey?
1: Um, you know, it's when you grow up in an environment that, you know, it, it becomes a part of you. And so every, everywhere else is your home away from home, and then you come home. And so, New Jersey will always be my
0: home. Well, that's awesome, man. I want to thank you for taking the time today, Frankie. It's uh, it's great to talk to you. Uh, the, the wonderful Randy Alexander, who I talk to. I've known Randy for like two years, but we've never met. And we both live in the same town, which is weird. So, yep. we we have to get coffee one day. But, Absolutely. Uh, Randy a,
1: actually uh, is one of the partners in Calling All Divas. Okay. And he's our publicist, so... It's, uh, it's a pretty cool show. I'd like to invite you to it when, when we come to the Keswick.
0: I will definitely come. I just saw the Hooters there a few weeks ago. so Awesome. I love the awesome. Keswick. So I want to thank you now. Now, do you, are you on social media? How do people get in touch with you? I know your website is Frankie. You have a com website.
1: Yeah, I don't really go on that that much. But, you know, Facebook, Frankie Previtt, or, you know, Frankie and the Knockouts has a Facebook page. So I answer to all my fans that go to Frankie and the Knockouts on Facebook uh, FridayMusic.com. If that if that's uh, somebody wants to uh, purchase the uh, the box set, FridayMusic.com is one way. Or go on Frankie and Knockouts Facebook, and there's a bunch of little videos there you can click on, and it'll tell you you know how to purchase
0: it. I want to thank you for coming. on I want to thank you for doing the work with uh, pancreatic cancer. And so people go follow Frankie, Google him, go to Facebook, buy his demos, give to the cause, give to his pocket. We all need it. So, people, uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. Tell me who you want to hear in the show, and I'll try to get them. And you guys have a great holiday. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.